This is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and we have entered a mini-green season. Now Sunday's an ordinary time that'll come and take us to Ash Wednesday, to Lent. But this green season is tinctured with the Epiphany theme of the manifestation of God and how do we as instruments of God's purposes make manifest this presence to the world. And we have, as the gospel, the last of the three gospels that are always read during uh, Epiphany, we had the, the visit of the Magi on Epiphany in the West. We have the baptism of Christ last week. And we have today the wedding scene at Cana, where Jesus transforms the water into wine. Father Thomas Keating says uh, these readings have significance uh, spiritually in this sense. On Epiphany, the manifestation of the babe's divine nature to the Magi expressed this movement of incorporation into Christ and of the transformation of consciousness. And last Sunday, the manifestation of Jesus' divine nature to the Jews by the voice from heaven after his baptism in the Jordan signifies our proximate call to divine union the human family and each of us is purified by the waters of baptism and prepared for spiritual marriage with the Son of God. So it is about uh, what Jesus Christ is by nature we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. So that's the thing that we promote during Epiphany. We're in the last stage. Chris, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. And then we're going to go to Lent, Easter, Pentecost. What I want to preach about today is the reading from uh, 1 Corinthians and then to say a word about the wedding scene at Cana, the gospel uh, that's appointed for this Sunday every year. Um, you hear me, hear me over and over again say that the Corinthian church was, to say the least, um, controversial in its internal life. And Paul, when he left Corinth, was engaged in a lively correspondence with the Corinthian church. Uh, there are some biblical scholars that believe, particularly with 2 Corinthians, that actually what we have here in First and Second Corinthians is maybe four letters instead of just two, but that they have been put together for editorial purposes and so forth. And in 1 Corinthians, he's engaged in a defense of his apostleship, but he's also answering some questions that have been raised to him by people in Corinth, people who were in Corinth with him and have come now with him in his missionary journey. And they're talking about something today that is a very important thing, and it affords me the opportunity uh, to preach about uh, a topic which we don't talk about a great deal. But here's the situation on the ground. There are a number of people within the Corinthian congregation, you have all kinds. One is a group who say, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to practice the Jewish law. So you have to do at least four things that are important and continue to do them. Men must be circumcised. You must observe the Jewish dietary laws. And you must keep uh, the Sabbath and all of the laws that surround uh, the practice of Judaism. If you don't do those things, you're not in. The group we're dealing with today are a group of Christians that 
or people that we would call the Gnostics, who say that there are certain spiritual practices, the purpose of Jesus, Jesus Christ's ministry is to um, uh, bring you some species of enlightenment, some internal self-knowledge, some secret knowledge that was not imparted to all Christian people that uh, is more important than his death, resurrection, and ascension. There are some internal spiritual things that you need to learn, and there are some internal spiritual practices that you need to cultivate. The Gnostics are very popular these days, and there's a whole lot about them on YouTube. There are a whole lot of uh, books about Gnosticism that talk about what it is and that it was actually the true Christianity until it was suppressed. So if you operate on the basis of talking about the, pro the, 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 the emergence of the history of ideas as being uh, certain groups win and certain groups lose, the Gnostics are the ones who lost and now they have been pushed to the side. But we have discovered all of these writings and now know about them and so we can uncover the true Christianity. My own personal view about that is, is this, and there are a number of biblical scholars who, who share my view. The first one is that um, there may be some things in this literature that are important for understanding the uh, emerging Christianity after uh, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But there are a number of things in this uh, literature that also give us some reasons for why it didn't persist. Not that it was actively suppressed, but that it simply was not, did not square with the ministry of Jesus. He wasn't about internal enlightenment. He was about transformation of the world. So most people who feel better about internal enlightenment is you know, it doesn't quite take the effort. It's self-focused. And all of us these days, my friends, are extremely self-focused, whether, whether we want to be or not. So it is something that is hugely popular. About 15 years ago, I picked a book up. Um, I think it was at the Regent College Bookstore in Vancouver. At the, on the campus of the University of British Columbia. And I bought some books, and they said, oh, well, you bought over $50 worth of books. You can have one of these books in front of the cash register for free. So I took a book written by a well-known New Testament scholar who taught for years at the University of Chicago. His name was Robert M. Grant. He was an Episcopal priest, and he wrote a lot of books uh, about New Testament Christianity, but and he was an expert on... I heard him give a talk one time in my seminary, all, and it was only about Roman coins and what was on them. And by virtue of the inscriptions and things, we can get some insight into who Jesus was, what sort of a world he was living in. It was very interesting. But this was a book about some obscure, some uh, philosophical something back in the Roman Empire era. And in the course of reading the book, uh, there was a, a comment that he made about the Gnostic literature. You see, we didn't know much about this stuff until the, the late 1940s. There was the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, and then about a year later, there was some, a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi where they found all these writings, all of these Gnostic writings. 
And when the Nag Hammadi literature was there, and we began to get various theories about Gnosticism and how it got pushed to the side and that Orthodox Christianity triumphed and yada, 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 uh, we began to say, well, what happened to all this literature and how come it got hidden away here? And if, was there any more and what did they do? And there were some who speculated, well, it was all destroyed and so on. And Robert M. Grant, through an elaborate process of descriptions, the reason there isn't very much of it is because people stopped reading it. So nobody was copying it anymore to the degree that they had before. In any case, the important thing about Gnostic Christianity, in my opinion, is that it doesn't do anything about what N.T. Wright in the book I'm reading says. We begin with the birth of Jesus, and then we go fast forward and focus on his uh, trial, death, resurrection, and ascension, and there's a whole middle section in the Gospels that doesn't get much attention. And so real Christianity is about the middle bits, and the green seasons, both this small one and also the big one at the end, after Pentecost, is about the middle bits. What then must we do? So Paul is speaking to people who have these various views about what the important spiritual gifts are, how you can tell if you really have them, and what it is that you must do uh, in order to cultivate these gifts. And more to the point, they weren't ashamed of saying that they believed themselves to be spiritually superior to the people who did not possess these gifts. And as a result of that, they said, you need to get on board and to do these things. So what we see for Paul established in the Corinthian church is a hierarchy of gifts. You know, you could take this and talk about it in any uh, way you want in the social construct that we have uh, of reality today in this country. There are people who have a certain hierarchy of what it is that's important. You know, my family had a, held in very high regard education which I think you should, but um, there, there was also the tendency that was we have it and other people don't, right? So depending upon the level of um, uh, zeal that you had, you would then be engaged in a process of making sure that more people receive the education than less, which is a good and righteous thing to do. But it's very easy to sort of fall into the view that, well, we possess this and other people don't, and we feel some sense of um, superiority or there's a hierarchy about these kinds of things. So Paul says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And that means that when people begin to reflect about things like, what does God want me to do? You could think to yourself, you know, I don't, know what God wants me to do and I'm not sure there's any talent or skill or ability that I possess that he would want. I'm not sure that I could offer him anything. My focus is, you know, maybe much more rudimentary, much more uh, present oriented, right? Or I'm finding myself very focused by necessity on the everyday demands uh, challenges and opportunities that face me. So what do I have to offer in this sense? And what Paul is saying in this response today is you have plenty to offer. And it's the obligation of the Christian community to not encourage or enforce 
any kind of hierarchical or superior views about what gifts are better than others, what things are better than others. When I was about 13 or 14, I worked for part of the summer where I was worked at the store in my grandfather's business. And I worked in the warehouse that we had in South City, South San Francisco. And uh, we uh, had this warehouse where we uh, packaged and sold a whole line of birdseed and stuff for Safeway stores, you know, pet supplies that we sold in the regular store, but we had a big wholesale business. So I worked there, and I was just sort of a warehouseman driving the forklift and sweeping, sweeping the place out. And one of my, my grandfather's employees who worked for him for about 40 years, Eddie Edwards, one day came up to me and grabbed the broom out of my hand and said, listen, I'm going to show you and teach you how to sweep. You don't know anything about how to sweep. And she did. And I realized, no, I didn't, and I put no elbow grease into it before. I didn't know anything about any of that. And it was a very rudimentary thing, and it turned out that Eddie Edwards was the consummate sweep expert <laughs> in the warehouse, you know. And I never, I never forgot that. Paul is driving at this when he speaks about varieties of gifts but the same spirit. And he speaks about prophetic utterance, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, all of the things that are part of the um, religious language or spiritual language of early Christianity. But his real point is, is that what has happened within the Corinthian congregation, particularly with these Gnostic Christians, is that they have begun to believe in the superiority of their own outlook and uh, tend not to pay any attention to, to other things, you know. So that's the word to us about what it is that we ought to be thinking about uh, when we say, how do we make God manifest? What kind of language do we use to describe this to other people? And in an era when most people have absolutely no religious understanding or knowledge about anything, or perhaps interest, uh, it is still important for us to be concerned about engaging them at their level about what the deepest things are that motivate them in their life and what they would like to know more about and how would they be able to make their contribution. So Paul says we need to always remember there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. <clears throat> Father Keating about the wedding scene at Cana says... Finally, the manifestation of Jesus' divine nature to the apostles through the transformation of water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana signifies the consummation of the spiritual marriage of Christ with human nature and with each of us in particular. There's a famous line, I talked about it maybe a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus is a little short with his mother. She's at the table... And she says, they have no more wine, son. <laughs> and he turns to her and says, the Greek text is a little different. Uh, Woman, what have you to do with me? <coughs> and I've repeated many, many times, John Chrysostom, the famous preacher in Constantinople in the 400s AD, who preached on this text and said, at that moment, our Lord released his mother from a tyrannous affection. Make of it what you will. 
But then again, she said, do what he says to the people. So they go and they uh, fill these jugs with water. They have samples of them. You can see them in museums. It was a huge amount of, of these jars, and he transforms it into wine. It's his first miracle, and one of the waiters comes by and says, you know, most people uh, save the, the good wine for, for uh, you drink the good wine first and the bad wine for last, and this wine is the best wine. You know, what in the world uh, are you doing? It doesn't make sense because they're all drunk, you know. <laughs> they won't be able to tell the difference. So what this is about is not the fact that Jesus turned water into wine or whether that historically happened or what, any of that. It's about God's abundance and God's ability to transform commonplace things into other things in such a way as to make us understand that there's always enough. It's also about the Eucharist, the, 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 the blood of Christ, the, the wine at the Eucharist and its importance uh, to the people of that particular community. St. Jerome, who is a famous biblical scholar who lived in the 5th century A.D. and was the translator of the Vulgate Bible, the Bible in Western Christianity for eons in Latin. He did the Vulgate translation. Somebody asked him once, um, did the people there, the guests at this wedding, did they drink up all that wine that Jesus had turned, wine from the water? Did they drink it all up? He said, no, we're still drinking it. And the point that he was making is that uh, it is the, f the, the food of life, uh, the spirit of life that Christian people participate in on a regular basis uh, at the Eucharist. Father Keating says, Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul. He assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. By taking the human condition upon himself, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. Um, I've always been sort of fond of a theological uh, point of view about the existence of God that was uh, first promoted by St. Anselm, who was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And he produced something called the uh, ontological proof for the existence of God. And in it, he said, God must exist because we can think of God, that it is possible for human beings to do that. So when you think about what does it mean, God consciousness, and Jesus infuses humanity, what he is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. Somehow we, we're able to perceive this. Now, many would say there are a, a huge number of holes in this particular theological outlook. That's not, it's, there, there are. But I've always thought that the idea that we can think of this uh, is always a possibility. I think this is going to sound crazy. We're walking around with these. 
And I remember watching Star Trek as a kid. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And the kind where you flip it open and you're saying, okay, or now there's push to talk. <laughs> like this, you know, and said, did you bring those shingles at the, you know? Well, some, somebody got beamed me up. That's what's next, you know. Although I'm a little bit nervous. How do you get, you, if you get your atoms mixed up with somebody else's atoms and then they got to reconstitute you and it's a little bit peculiar, you know, it could be a big situation. So it might, but there, there, no doubt someone is working on this. I can, I can just uh, assure you that we, we have this sort of thing. All right, the takeaway for the wedding scene at Cana is God's uh, presence produces abundance. Our focus never needs to be on lack, but how we use the resources we have, the gifts of the Spirit, no matter how small or how great, how we use them to, to build up the body of Christ. We also know that in some way we continue to participate in the life that is demonstrated to us at the wedding scene at Cana, that we're part of that abundant celebration of, of life. Jesus wasn't thinking about some other world like the Gnostics or something else. He was thinking about this world, and he was a party guy. The Gospels are absolutely full of him celebrating and eating, uh, unfortunately, with sinners and outcasts. Okay? People who, people who might be, as my grandparents would have said, a little racy. But somehow, as the result of that, he gave, gave them some insight into uh, God's inclusive work in the world. So this week, think about that. Think about the fact that you're part of God's inclusive work and celebrate whatever gifts of the Spirit you possess, no matter how small or how large. God needs them, wants them, and loves, accepts, and forgives you unconditionally. Amen.